Welcome to our return, our triumphant return for Branch of Hope Apologetics and South Bay Apologetics Group. This conference is entitled The Foundation for Hope, an Optimistic Eschatology. And before we begin, as we should always begin, and I've been derelict in doing before, let's open with a word of prayer. Please pray with me. Eternal Jehovah, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you that you have so many of your own who long to look into your word, long to see it applied faithfully and biblically, that you wish to bless us as your people, and that you want us to be ever more burdened for the lost, that we would passionately seek the salvation of souls, that we would do the work that you would have us to do, knowing that indeed you will begin this work in your own, and that you are faithful to complete it every time, for you alone in your Son are the author and finisher of our faith, and your Spirit goes out before us in power, converting, convincing, convicting, and sanctifying power. To that end, we pray that you would be among us, that you would dwell in us, that you would richly pour your presence out among us, that this would go forth, and that many would hear your word and would heed it, would come to saving faith, and would be ever more sanctified if they're already in the faith. We love you, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We ask these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake, along with pardon for each and every one of our sins. Amen. All right. So, our first talk is entitled, The Historical Failure of Man-Centered Religion and Governments. Our speaker is Bob Peruca. He is a deacon here and an elder candidate that is relevant to all of you who are from Branch in this room and watching hopefully on the live stream. Uh, and he earned a master's in religious studies with an emphasis in Eastern philosophy and religion from UCSB, the University of California, Santa Barbara. He has a beautiful family. He's really all about that beach life, so play some volleyball with him. I still haven't done it yet. Great guy. I think you'll really want to hear what he's got to say. Let's give him a hand. Bob. Thank you, Daniel, for that gracious and rousing introduction. I appreciate that. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here today. Um, I want to thank Eddie Anoraga and Jason Gallagher for the opportunity to speak today. And just want to give a little background on myself. Um, the church where I came to faith was heavily involved in apologetics. It was where I was introduced to people like Francis Schaeffer, um, Walter Martin, and Gordon Clark. Uh, heavy hitters, and it was great. Uh, these men were, and um, their writings, they really spoke to me. I was uh, hungry for answers. I mean, why should I believe in and embrace the biblical life and worldview? The, the questions I asked were, the tenets and principles of the Christian faith based on true truth, or were they just someone else's take on history, somebody's opinion? Were these just subjective viewpoints? Um, I wanted to understand, not in a superficial way, but a profound way, the core tenets of the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. So I found as I continued to read, study, pray, and worship that the biblical life and worldview made sense and had answers to these questions I was seeking answers to. These ideas and the concepts, they, they hung together. They formed a unity, and most importantly, Christianity was livable. 
It's not easy, but it is livable. So I think that faced with the moral revolution confronting us today, the fact that everything that was held as absolute morals is now seemingly turning to liquid and evaporating, what we're involved here today is vital. It's really important, and contending for the faith has never been more important than it is today. So I want to thank everyone for being here, uh, as well as those live streaming. Thanks for listening, and also a shout-out to Alan, John, and Don for providing the uh, video support for uh, this conference today. So the issue, the topic that I've been asked to speak on is the historical failure of man-centered religion and government. So I think it's important, as Pastor Paul always says, truth loves the definition. I think we need to define our terms. And what do I, need, what do I mean by failure? Failure is a lack of success. It's a failure to deliver on what was promised. So man-centered religion in this context is going to be what we're describing today is religion that elevates man as autonomous, a law unto himself, autonomos. And for our purpose, we'll include under this umbrella humanism and atheism as well, because ironically, I would argue that even the atheist is defined only by his denial that God exists. And that, as R.C. Sproul would say, everyone is a theologian, whether you like it or not. Ideas have consequences. Bad ideas have bad consequences. And ideas never stay localized. These ideas, which are mostly born amongst academics and philosophers, they can infiltrate a culture, and they do infiltrate a culture. They influence the zeitgeist and the Weltanschauung, the spirit of the age and the worldview of us as individuals. They percolate down to us. So in essence, we're going to explore the fact that man-centered religion, in any of its manifestations, has not delivered on its promise to fulfill human longing for meaning, value, and significance. This worldview, this man-centered religion and worldview, actually leaves human beings in a state of despair, which is the complete loss of absence or hope. So the principles of any government flow from and are based on a worldview and fundamental presuppositions. The governments have been proven to succeed or fail based on the ideological foundations they rest upon. For example, we have the atheism of the 20th century was a key factor in the manifestation of communism and the totalitarian regimes and authoritarian regimes that resulted. And all we have to do is look at present-day Cuba, Venezuela, China, for the suffering on a massive scale and the repression of human rights that an atheistic or man-centered worldview results in. So, we are going to look at, first of all, the characteristics of a man-centered versus God-centered religion, which these characteristics are antithetical to the biblical life and worldview, where we're told to lean not on our own understanding, and that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So I want to take a moment to define more clearly these differences between God-centered and man-centered religions and worldviews. And so I'm relying on J.I. Packer here. So if anybody has an issue with these categories, you can take it up with Mr. Packer. Um, we were talking about, he divides it into the old gospel and the new gospel, and then humanism and exclusive humanism. Four. So first of all, the center of reference is, 
in the old gospel, which is the biblical Christian life and worldview, is God. The center of reference in the uh, in the uh, new gospel is man, and of course the center of reference for humanism is of course man. Man is elevated as autonomous. In the old gospel, God saves. In the new gospel, God enables man to save himself. And of course, in exclusive humanism, there's nothing to be saved from, and human flourishing is the goal. In the old gospel, sovereign, unconditional election by God is the main tenet. In the new gospel, man can receive God at any time based on his own will, and therefore salvation is conditional on his own will. In humanism, God is a construct and really is therefore irrelevant. In the old gospel, faith is a gift from God. In the new gospel, faith is exercised by man independent from God. And in, uh, in the humanistic uh, worldview, faith is fine as long as there's faith in something, and that faith can be in anything. In the old gospel, salvation is secured by the triune God. It's monergistic. In the new gospel, man's salvation is not secured by God, but by man's free will. It's synergistic. Man is neither good nor evil, and therefore does not have to be saved from anything from a humanistic perspective. And objective guilt is simply a myth. It doesn't exist. In the old gospel, God is to be feared in awe and reverence. In the new gospel, God is man's helper. <clears throat> he is all-loving. <clears throat> Excuse me. In the Old Testament, God is about judgment. In the New Testament, God is about love. This is the new gospel. And in humanism, the Bible is to be read as a myth. It's really just fiction. In the Old Gospel, the creator is a source, means and end in both nature and grace. In the New Gospel, man's free will can affect God's will by his autonomous choices. And in humanism, God does not exist in a mechanical universe. Man is basically a machine. So in the New Gospel, I owe my faith to my election. I'm sorry, in the Old Gospel, I owe my faith to my election. In the New Gospel, I owe my election to my faith. And in the humanistic perspective, faith is fine as long as it stays personal since it has nothing to do with claims of objective truth. In the, old, in the old gospel, regeneration precedes faith. In the new gospel, faith precedes regeneration. And in humanism, it really doesn't matter. It's all a matter of personal choice and preference. In the old gospel, Christ as Lord, Christ is, is your Lord and your Savior. In the new gospel, Christ is your Savior, and maybe it's Lord. he's Lord if I choose him to be. In the humanistic perspective, Christ is neither Savior nor Lord because there's nothing to be saved from. There are no bad days, if you've ever seen that bumper sticker. So J.I. Packer sums it up this way in terms of uh, the biblical life and worldview. Election is a choice by God based on his own good pleasure of particular undeserving persons to be saved from sin and brought to glory, being redeemed by the death of Christ, Universalism reduces love's God and grace to a salvation wish, a divine failure, since there is no guarantee. So I'd like to turn now to Francis Schaeffer. 
he was uh, very influential for me in terms of taking a look at history and really criticizing it from a biblical perspective and really breaking it down. He wrote several books. One of them was Escape from Reason, another one, The God Who Is There, and then, of course, there was that famous uh, video series, How Then Shall We Live? So I'm going to quote um, Mr. Schaefer now. Christianity is realistic because it says if there is no truth, there's also no hope, and there can be no truth if there is no adequate base. It's prepared to face the consequences of being proved false and say with Paul, if you find the body of Christ, the discussion is finished. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Christianity leaves absolutely no room for a romantic answer. It's either true or it's false. So in uh, brief, I'm going to go through this quickly in terms of um, the history of uh, Western civilization. I mean, we could, we, could talk, we could talk about this for a week. Basically, one example is the Roman Empire, which decayed from within as the focus shifted from finite Roman gods who were actually amplified human beings to the worship of a finite man who was Caesar. He uses, uh, Schaefer uses the example of a Roman bridge, and in his video, he shows this bridge, this old bridge, and this bridge was okay to bear the, a certain amount of weight, like maybe a horse and a cart. But if you put a semi on this bridge, this bridge is going to collapse. So his point was that there was no adequate base in Roman society for this bridge to handle the weight of the culture. And in this same way, societies built on the finite sources of truth will eventually fail, as did the Roman Empire, which rotted from within due to the moral depravity and political oppression and tyranny. So then he talks about also the Renaissance versus the Reformation. And the Renaissance, as brilliant as the culture and the art were, and we all, we all I mean, I love Renaissance art, but what it did was it put man in the center of the universe. Man is the measure of all things. The reformers, by contrast, rejected this by going back to sola scriptura, where the Bible is clear that God is sovereign and to be worshipped in spirit and in truth for who he is, an awe-inspiring, majestic creator and sustainer. So in the 20th century, Schaefer talks about, of course, the worst century in, in, in history in terms of a totalitarianism and authoritarianism and the lack of basic human rights and freedoms. In Marxism, man is a machine. It's a socio, he's a socioeconomic identity that owes his allegiance to the state. The exception, of course, is for the privileged few who ran the state, and they get all the spoils and everybody else is oppressed. And we see this today in Venezuela, Cuba, China. Marxism is based on materialistic atheism, which asserts that repression is temporary until utopia can be reached. And there never is any progress toward utopia. Therefore, the dictatorship becomes permanent. Of course, the neo-Marxists would say that, well, you know, really pure communism has never been applied. So really, we, we, we really don't know what, what pure communism would result in. But um, I find that as a weak argument. The arbitrary man-made absolutes are, foundation, are the foundation, so there's really no basis for right and wrong. There's no ultimate basis for morality. The elites dictate the morals based on their own self-interest. Isn't that convenient? Schaefer draws an interesting parallel then between the French and Russian revolutions, both based on a non-theistic, man-centered worldview. Interestingly enough, 
Both had arbitrary absolutes and both settled for dictators in Lenin and Napoleon. A few facts about the communist governments. Um, they've butchered over 100 million people. That's staggering. At the end of the communist rule in Russia, Russia exported less than the country of Singapore. Five communist countries in the world today, they all lack political, religious, and economic freedom. And it's interesting that communists have killed more humans than Nazis, but the Nazis were so diabolical because they systematized their killing apparatus. So to summarize, the inevitable result of man-centered religion and government is tyranny and oppression based on arbitrary morals that have no absolute foundation. So we try to base culture and society and, and government on such a weak, finite foundation. This does not lead to human flourishing, but human suffering. We recall the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, 24, 27. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. We can just imagine the fall of the Berlin Wall with that. Ideas have consequences, and the consequences of the presuppositions of man-centered religion and where these ideas ultimately lead man, as Schaefer would assert, leads man to the line of despair. True truth is denied when there's no absolute foundation on which to base morals, value, meaning, and significance. Man's dignity is robbed. There's no logical answer to the dilemmas that face modern man. However, the humanist, he asserts, just, just give us another day. We're, we're, we're progressing toward the goal of human flourishing and happiness. We're almost there. Utopia is right around the corner. Man-centered materialism asserts that all that exists is chaotic, irrational, and absurd. However, this view is impossible to hold into practice because it's impossible to live life as if it's meaningless and absurd. We need order in our life. It's necessary for life. All hope toward achieving a rational, unified answer to knowledge and life is dashed in the materialistic framework. Reason and faith are separate. Man must take a leap of faith, divorced from reason, in order to arrive at any authentic truth. And I'm going to quote Schaefer here. The leap is common to every sphere of modern man's thought. Man is forced to the despair of such a leap because he cannot live as a machine. If below the, the line, man is dead, above the line, after the non-rational leap, man is left without categories. There are no categories because categories are related to rational, rationality and logic. There is therefore no truth and no non-truth in antithesis, no right or wrong. You are adrift. This is true despair, friends. Being left adrift with no anchor, no ultimate reference point, except the shifting sands of culture. As Sartre would say, the existential truth about life is, in fact, there is no exit. So man is left divided, alienated from himself and the world, because if the infinite personal God of the Bible is not true, man is left to fend for himself in a sea of absurdity and meaninglessness. So I'm going to refer now to a man named Charles Taylor, 
who wrote a book called The Secular Age. 900 pages. I've listened to it in an audio book twice. I have a lot of time to drive, so, you know. Um, and I'm, I'm st- after the second uh, uh, listening, I'm starting to get it. But he's a, he's a very insightful guy. And his main argument was that in the last 500 years, a massive shift has taken place in what is plausible in Western culture. 500 years ago, it was impossible not to believe in God. It was the village idiot who was the atheist. Whether true or false, bro, the true faith or lukewarm faith existed, virtually everyone believed in God as a creator, sustainer, and judge of the universe. So over the next few hundred years, the idea that God did not exist and that an exclusively humanistic option as a worldview became available. And now today, the shift is complete. Belief in God is no longer the default option. It is now, from the exclusively humanistic perspective, impossible to believe in God as a viable option. It's completely flipped. The only rational choice to believe in, in exclusive humanism, as a legitimate worldview, as those who, who do believe in God. Excuse me. The only rational choice is to believe in exclusive humanism as a legitimate worldview, and those that do believe in God, well, they're not on the right side of history. So they're out. We are out. We are marginalized. The material universe is the only thing that exists from this perspective. Science provides the only reliable source of knowledge about this universe. We only live this life. There is no afterlife. Exclusive humanism asserts that we can live ethical and fulfilling lives without belief in anything beyond our own empirical knowledge and rationalism. So Charles Taylor was actually raising a warning flag about an aggressive and hegemonic cast of mind that seeks to drive out of the public square any consideration of what God or the moral law might require of a just society. I'm wondering if we've all experienced this, this marginalization, this fact that, you know what, keep your opinions to yourself. That's fine. If you can live with yourself and believe what you believe, good for you. But we're on the right side of history. This shift to exclusive humanism, which is essentially man-centered religion, has manifested itself in the current angst and feeling of being, we're haunted, though, by transcendence by transcendence. So if all reality exists in the imminent frame, this self-enclosed universe, but man still lacks the fullness of meaning, the feeling of value, the feeling of significance. We ask, is this all there is to life? To live for the goal of human flourishing and happiness, and then that's it. The transcendent frame, which which is the essential aspect of the God-centered cosmos, has been loft off, but we still feel that something is missing. Biblical Christianity, faith in a, in a personal infinite God, has been rejected. Exclusive humanism becomes the order of the day. But life only in the imminent frame is unfulfilling. It's purposeless. So the echoes of the transcendent order still haunt us. The Apostle Paul asserts that we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Romans 1.21, for all they knew, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish, foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the truth of the immortal God for images made to look like a human being, birds, animals, and reptiles. So what happens is, according to, or according to Taylor, is what he calls the Nova Effect. It's an explosion of believing and unbelieving options 
that arise out of a felt disappointment and lack of depth with the impersonal order of a mechanistic flat universe. So what you get is this explosion of New Age religion and philosophy. Christianity is rejected. We're faced with a mechanistic flat universe, but transcendence still haunts us because we're made in the image of God. And you get this explosion of all of these different worldviews. Now, Calvin, of course, referred to our human minds as an idol factory. This is what happens when God is rejected. Something has to fill the void. When that truth is suppressed, Taylor asserts that this is the Nova effect with this plethora of spiritual options. These options range from a synthesis of Christianity and other religions to New Age philosophy and religion to exclusive humanist options that claim it's not good to be religious, but we need to be spiritual. When asked to define what that means, it revolves around the reality that we need to justify ourselves as, as a vision of a good person. We signal our virtue and hope that the universe will repay us with kind goodness and blessing. And how many people do we talk to today who believe in the law of karma or the law of you reap what you sow in terms of putting something out to the universe and then hoping to get it back? And imagine the despair that happens when, when you're not repaid by the universe. Again, it leads to despair. It leads to emptiness. To summarize, when biblical Christianity is rejected, Human beings cannot be satisfied with life in the imminent frame, focused on human flourishing and happiness as our only goal. So I'd like to close here with a discussion of something that has been in the newspapers. Um, And it's amazing that in this little corner of Frankfurt, Germany, in the 20s and the 30s, that something called critical race theory and critical theory and theory have become the order of the day and have dominated Uh, This obscure school of of thought has become the dominant lens through which we are told everything must be viewed. Education, government, social policy, personal values, everything. So the origins of critical theory, it is a worldview, and everything relevant in terms of social relations has to do with power dynamics in, in the society between some group that is in power and another group that's oppressed. So liberalism and Western civilization bake in the assumptions of, the, of, of their creators. That's what this theory presupposes. White, straight, Western men have intentionally and unintentionally cooked up systems of power to benefit themselves and oppress others not in power. Power is a zero-sum object in this worldview. And Christianity, most importantly, is a part of this system, systemic oppression of women, homosexuals, minorities, and underprivileged people. So the object of critical theory is to say that the groups that have power make systems of oppression and advantage in place without even realizing that they're doing it. It's unintentional or intentional. And the critical theorist's job is to identify and expose these assumptions and systems of oppression and advantage so they can be analyzed and discarded. Critical theory is not about reform. It's about revolution. It's about turning everything upside down. So the goal is to equitize things that make Western civilization into an ideal democracy. And again, Christianity is a part of this systemic oppression. So I want want to take a look uh, real quickly at a theory. So what's, what's a theory's purpose? A theory's purpose is to understand something. Critical theory's goal is to understand how something goes wrong. 
So the assumption is that the thing you're observing is wrong. That's your presupposition. If you don't think it's wrong, you're simply not seeing it because you're conscious or unconscious by it, and systemic prejudice prevail. So they're looking for injustices in a system, and this mis- these injustices must fit the vision of the social engineers who are, who are running the show. So critical theory, I, I like this. Uh, I'm, I'm getting a lot of this from a guy named James Lindsay who wrote a book called Critical and Cynical Theories. Um, liberal thinker, and it's interesting, I think, that um, I'm finding affinity with liberal thinkers that want to at least exchange ideas and talk about ideas and put ideas in the, uh, on the table and discuss and argue them versus the left that wants to shut us down and shut, it, shut down any conversation. So James Seary has written this book, and he basically says that um, critical theory is like an industrial solvent. It has a really limited use, but if you pour it on everything, it's going to kill everything. So an example of, uh, in practice of, a, of, of critical theory would be, so if I own a liquor store and um, two men walk in, a black man and a white man, and they walk in at the same time, and if I serve the black man first, it's because I'm afraid that the black man is going to rob me. And if I serve the white man first, the black man is disrespected. So either way, I'm a racist. And it's, 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 um, it's amazing. So the world of theory is one, and I'm going to quote Albert Moeller here, and we'll close with this. The world of theory is one in which it's presumed that what exists must be oppressive, and it must be undone by theorizing how there must be interlinking systems of oppression that have produced all of this. These interlinking systems of oppression include Western law, Western history, and, of course, historic Christianity. In the midst of all this great body of West, the Western literature must also be deconstructed. Every Western novel must be deconstructed. You add to the world of theory the outlook of critical theorists who argue that there must be a ruthless critique applied to every dimension of life. It must be a never-ending, never-ceasing approach of theory and critique. Everything is now ideological in a larger society, so basically all that remains is a system of competing ideologies. And the destructiveness that comes by the application of this theory rigorously, ruthlessly, and of course, ridiculously. Christians recognize that there are serious issues in wrestling with history. We get it. But this is not a serious way of dealing with these questions. This is a way that basically denies any objective truth. It rejects the entire world of facts and says that everything is just a competing system of narratives. And I I was quoting Albert Moeller there. Nietzsche anticipated this worldview of despair and hopelessness, hopelessness with the statement that all that was left for man, based on the idea that there are no absolutes, was for him to build systems. That's it. That's what's left. Competing narratives. No truth. So when applied to critical race theory, identity politics is born, where the real identity of people uh, is not based on who they are, but on your markers, on your gender, on your race, and on your socioeconomic standing. That's it. So in essence, the effect is that critical theory and race theory, critical race theory are basically divisive. They don't bring people together. It divides people based on these identity markers. The Bible teaches us 
in contrast, that we are all made in the image of God. There is only one humanity. We're not, our identity is not based on these markers. It's based on us being human beings made in the image of God. So the inevitable result, again, is to the line of despair. Critical theory offers no hope, just, just deconstruction and revolution. Man, again, is left adrift in a wasteland of relativism, without absolutes, without rational basis for faith, without hope, and without any exit to the human condition of life, not making sense on any unified understanding of the human being made in the image of God, the creator, and his providence. And this is where we end up, without the infinite personal God of the Bible. So that closes my talk. I'll let my other brothers... um, Give us the message of hope.